if you haven't been with us yet this summer, we are work, we're doing a series through the Psalms, and so today we are in Psalm uh, 26, and so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, the verses will be up on the screen. Uh, whatever, whatever works for you is great. Um, I want to begin by telling you about a man named uh, J.P. Hayes. Uh, J.P. Hayes is a golfer, a PGA Tour golfer. Uh, he's been around for a long time, uh, apparently. Um, he's not like usually at the top of the leaderboard. He's kind of middle of the pack, but he's been playing the tour for years. And I want to tell you about something that happened, an, an ethical dilemma that he found himself in uh, at the end of the 2008 season. So 2008, he was playing a tournament to qualify for the next year uh, so that he'd get a tour card so he could play on the tour. And what he realized after his round was that he had used a non-regulation ball for two strokes, uh, in, in, his, in his round. Uh, it was a chip and a putt, something like that. He didn't, there was a, a prototype ball that he'd been testing for Titleist, didn't realize it was in his bag. His caddy didn't realize he'd given it to him. After the fact, he realized uh, that this was the case, and so he, was, he was, had to decide whether he would report this because no one saw it. Uh, it wasn't on TV or anything like that. No one knew about it. Uh, he could have kept it to himself, and no one would have been the wiser. He also knew that there would be real consequences for, for this. And so he was in a dilemma. Uh, in the end, he, he did report it. He called an official that he knew and said, look, here's what happened. It was by mistake. And there were consequences. Uh, they disqualified him uh, for that tournament. And because of that, it meant that he didn't get a tour card for the next year. So the whole next year, he was not able to play golf on the PGA Tour, which for him uh, meant about two or $300,000 in prize money that he did not get. So the question... For us, uh, you know, ethical dilemma is always good to think. If I was there, if that was me, what, what would I have done? Would you have said anything? The ball didn't make him win, you know? It was two strokes. It, was, it, was not, it didn't make or break the round. It was, it was nothing like that. But it was a rule that was broken. So the real question uh, that, that we have to ask ourselves is, is this. What kind of people are we when no one is looking? That's really... The question, right? No one knew. No, no one would have known. And yet for J.P. Hayes, this was a matter of conviction, of moral conviction. And so he said this as they uh, interviewed him about this. He said, uh, yes, no one would have known, but I knew. And I have some people looking down on me that would have known. And so that was the decision I had to make. He, he, he di didn't feel he could do any different. There was a moral conviction that he felt this this was what was true. He wanted to be a person of truth and honesty. He had to report it. King David uh, would have agreed with him. Would have agreed that that was the right choice. Uh, he would have agreed that it's worth pursuing integrity in every aspect of our lives. Uh, not just in the areas that people see, but especially in the areas that people don't see. In the dark corners of our hearts and our mind. And we know that King David would have agreed with him uh, because our psalm today is a psalm of David. A psalm that King David wrote, uh, Psalm 26, and it's all about personal integrity. What it means uh, to be honest, to be upright, uh, moral, faithful, if you're a Christian. And King David is going to give us kind of a, a grand vision of biblical integrity, which frankly uh, is going to push us to examine our own integrity. To, to examine the extent to which we are actually pursuing integrity, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. And I, and I can tell you that more than likely, we are going to feel a little uncomfortable 
as we go through this examination process. Now, you can't get up and leave because uh, it would be awkward. Everyone would see you and know that you feel awkward about this. So you have to stay. Um, but I would invite you then, since you have to stay, uh, to enter into this process with uh, an interest to see what it is that God will reveal to you, to have a, a willing heart in terms of what this examination process will entail. So uh, we're going to ask two questions. One, what are some marks of integrity, some, some key marks of integrity that we see in this psalm? And then secondly, what are the benefits of integrity? So those two questions, and uh, I'll give you the first answer of the first question. A key mark of integrity, according to Psalm 26, is living with nothing to hide. Living with nothing to hide. And uh, we see this in the first three verses. I'm going to kind of read a section at a time. Uh, here's how David begins. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So uh, here at the beginning, we see David not just claiming to have integrity, but also inviting God to test his integrity. If you saw some of the words there, he said, prove me, try me, test my heart and my mind. Which really, if you think about it, is the, is the only way to actually see if you have integrity, is to be tested. In fact, this is the whole... Uh, idea behind product testing or technical testing. Uh, manufacturers can claim all sorts of things, but you don't know if it's true unless you test it. Uh, one of my good friends growing up, Keith, he had uh, one of the best summer jobs uh, that, that I've heard of. Uh, he worked for Terrison uh, Gas, uh, now Fortis, BC, so natural gas, and his job with uh, a team, what they would do is they would test the natural gas cylinders. So a manufacturer would say, okay, this, this cylinder is good up to 10,000 pounds or whatever it is. They would go out into this like open quarry area. They'd bring the cylinder. They'd have a, a high pressure gas line. They would hook it up and then they had a concrete bunker and they'd go behind the bunker and then they'd just keep filling the cylinder until it exploded. And then they would know what the, what the true structural integrity of that cylinder was. And the point is you wouldn't know until you applied the pressure. Right? The, the manufacturer could say anything, but once the pressure was applied, then you would know the true integrity, and the same is true for us, for our moral integrity. We don't really know whether we are people of integrity until we are put under pressure. And that is exactly what God spends a lot of his time doing, as some of us well know. And he doesn't, he doesn't try to hide it. He says, this is, this is part of one of my goals in your life. Uh, look at 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the genuineness of faith for those who are believers in Jesus, uh, our integrity as Christians, it's only revealed when it's tested by various trials. The pressure reveals whether, in fact, we are people of integrity. Um, this is really the whole story of Job, right? Uh, God and Satan were up in heaven looking down. God said, have you, have you looked at Job? He's a blameless, upright, a person of integrity. And Satan says, yeah, he is now because everything's going great in his life. But if you take all that away, he will curse you. 
Uh, Satan was saying uh, he'll be revealed to be not really a person of integrity. And of course, the testing begins. All the good things in Job's life are taken away. He's put under intense pressure. And he's revealed, actually, to be a man of integrity. He does not curse God. He, he asks a lot of questions, but he does not curse God. His integrity is revealed. In fact, in that moment, God himself is vindicated. And notice, David uses that same language. He says, vindicate me, O Lord. Meaning, reveal what you have done in me. The, the, the integrity, the moral purity of my life, it testifies to you. So vindicate me. Reveal the fact that you have actually been at work in my life. This is what testing does, what pressure does in our lives. That's why it is, in fact, a good thing in our lives. But here's, here's the question, I think, in light of this psalm. What is our response to the testing? What is our response to the pressure? Do we embrace it, like David, or do we resent the pressure that God allows to be put in our lives? Because there's a, a lot of situations in our lives where we are tempted to say, God, why are you doing it this way? Why, why do things have to happen this way? It's so difficult. It's so hard. I was reading through some of the uh, commentaries, and one of the commentators told the story of uh, tax season for him. Uh, he's from the U.S., he said he was filling out his forms like normal, and he has a family, so usually he, uh, he applies for the child tax credit, it's called in the U.S., but what he noticed uh, this particular year is that you, you, to apply for that, you need to live in the United States for six months, at least six months. And normally that's fine, but that year he had moved his family to the UK to finish his graduate studies. And when he looked at the calendar, he was shocked to realize that he was three days short of six months. And, and the tax credit for them would have been $4,500, a lot of money for him and his family at the time. So just think of that moment when he realized that. Think of the different ways that he could have uh, reacted to that. He could have, and I think we would understand, gotten very frustrated at that moment. Very angry at himself, maybe, for not realizing it, or certainly at God. You could imagine him saying, God, why didn't, I could have taken an earlier plane. Three days, that wouldn't have made a difference. Lord, you knew that I needed this money. Why, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you somehow prompt me to book earlier flights? You're sovereign over all things. He could have gotten very, very upset. He also probably would have been really tempted, uh, you know, to, to lie. Because the government doesn't need that money more than his family, clearly. There could have been a lot of ways of thinking that would have got him to a place of just, of just fudging the numbers. Or he could have embraced it. And that's, in fact, what he, what he did, by the grace of God. I'm not sure what he prayed, but I can imagine him saying, Lord, would you help me? Help me to, help me to demonstrate the heart of integrity that you've, that you've worked in me. Help me to just reveal the fact that I want to follow you above all things, that I trust you. You're going to provide for my family. I don't need to lie. I don't need to cheat. That's the heart that David has, really. David is saying, Lord, try me, prove me, test me, because he wants it to be revealed. He wants the opportunity to demonstrate his integrity. He wants to live with nothing to hide. Now, if you know King David, you may have a question there and say, what about Bathsheba and Uriah? Like, did he actually live? Fair enough. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But at this point, uh, when he was writing this psalm, he, he was living his life with an open book, saying, Lord, I want everything to come out, everything to come out in, into the open. Now, living that way, 
It's scary. Like some of you may be thinking, man, that, like I see the value of that a little bit, but man, that, that's scary to think that, that everything in my life, like I would just be open, I would confess all the, I mean, there's things I haven't thought of for years, things that I'm just used to keeping, keeping secret. Why would I do that? Well, well, you would do it because there is genuine healing, genuine peace that comes from allowing the Lord to test you and search you. In fact, uh, we see it in other Psalms. Here's Psalm 139, uh, 23 and 24. Uh, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're feeling a bit of a, a twinge in your conscience, may I encourage you, exhort you even, to spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time reading through and praying through Psalm 139, asking God to reveal to you those things which are hidden. Because the amazing thing about our sin is that it blinds us even to our other sins in our lives. That we may think to ourselves, yeah, I'm, I'm a person of integrity. I do live my life with nothing to hide. But there are very often areas that we have willingly forgot about, willingly kept under wraps that's keeping us from a greater intimacy with the Lord and a greater life of integrity. So the second thing we need to do, apart from asking God to search us and try us, is then to confess those sins to God first and foremost, but also to the people in our lives. It provides accountability. It, it's, it's a good step, another test of faith. If we are willing to share these difficult things, not, not with everyone, doesn't have to be the whole, the whole church, but with some people in our lives. This is what a life of integrity looks like that we are living with nothing to hide. And there is great peace in that, great joy in that. We're going to see that more as we work our way through. So that's the first thing. Second mark of, of integrity is separating from wickedness. Here's verses four and five. David says, um, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. Uh, now, as Christians, we are exhorted to keep ourselves from all kinds of evil. But if you notice here, David is focusing on the company we keep. He says uh, he doesn't uh, sit with men of falsehood, hypocrites, evildoers, or the wicked. Now, that doesn't mean that he never sits on a bench next to someone who is like morally corrupt. That's, that's not what he's saying. To sit with someone in that day meant that you would belong with them. Like you were, you were tight with them. So what he's saying is he would still be friendly with everyone in his village, everyone in the, you know, in the temple, everyone around him, but he wouldn't be close friends with those who were morally corrupt, with those he knew to be evil or wicked in that way. And the reason for this is obvious. Um, the closer people are to us, the more influence they have on our lives. It's just the way it works. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says it very clearly. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So if we don't separate ourselves from those who are morally corrupt, then we very likely will be corrupted as well. That's the whole impetus to, to separating, from distancing ourselves from, from evil and from wickedness. But this, this is tricky. It's tricky for a couple reasons. Number one, if we see ourselves as the good people and everyone around us as the bad people, then we're going to be full of pride, full of self-righteousness, puffed up. 
Uh, if we're part of the church and living and acting that way, people outside the church are going to look at us uh, very often and say, look, you, you guys are hypocrites. You're so full of yourself, holier than thou. You think you're so great. That's not a great look. That doesn't, that doesn't help us to connect well with outside uh, of the church, which is the other thing we're supposed to be doing as Christians, loving people well, connecting with our community, having opportunities in relationship to share the gospel. How do we do that if we're, if we're separating from everyone? In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul says this very thing to the church in Corinth. Look at what he says in chapter 5. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, look, I, I'm not, I don't want you to separate from all the people in your community that are swindlers, idolaters, aren't, aren't saved, aren't, because the whole point for the church is to go out into the world and, and to preach the gospel, to bring the good news. And we have to, to do that. We have to know people. So how do, we, how do we square this circle? How do we be people of integrity um, and, and not allow ourselves to be influenced by wickedness, but n- not allow ourselves to be full of pride and to actually be on mission? So here's the answer. The answer is in understanding why we are separating from wickedness. It's not because we are better than others. It's not because we are stronger than others. It's because we are weak, just like everyone else. It's because we have corrupt hearts that are susceptible to temptation, just like everyone else. We need to be honest about our weaknesses. We need to be honest about the effect that other patterns of behavior, uh, patterns of life will have on us, on our faith, on our integrity. And in those situations, we need to be willing to separate ourselves. So here's an example. Here's an example, a uh, real-life example, uh, from a family that, that we know, a Christian family, uh, who have a teenage daughter. And this teenage daughter uh, began to realize that the group of friends that she was hanging out with were getting into worse and worse behavior, drinking, sex, drugs, starting to smoke, starting to just really behavior that she didn't want to do. But this was a group of friends that she connected with really well. And she realized that there was a growing temptation for her to start to engage in these, these kinds of activities. So what she did, uh, displaying, I think, amazing maturity, is she went to her mom and she said, look, mom, these are the kids that I like. I don't like any of the kids at school. I like these kids, but, but they're starting to do more and more of these things, and I don't want to do those things, but it's getting harder and harder for me not to do them. And so she said, mom, I, I don't know, something has to change. And so something did change. They decided to move her schools. Uh, they decided to, to find another, there's a, other girls that she was connected with uh, from, I think, a sports team that she would, that were put her in a position where she could maintain her integrity. Now, notice why she separated. It wasn't out of pride. It wasn't because she thought she was better than anyone. It's because she recognized her weakness. And I would say, sadly, this kind of humility is, is lacking in the church. I know for me, at that stage of my life, I would have just pretended everything was fine. I would have ignored the temptation. I wouldn't have told anyone about it. I would have said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be strong enough to endure. In fact, I'm going to influence them. I'm going to be the good influence. And more than likely, I would have been overcome with temptation, would have found myself in patterns of darkness and sin. See, what King David is saying 
And what this girl is saying is like, we need to be wise, we need to be humble. Of course, of course we need to seek to connect with people around us. We need to love everyone around us. Have all different kind of levels and layers of, of relationship and connection, especially for the sake of helping people to know the hope we have in Christ. But we also need to be honest about our weaknesses. There will be certain situations that for one Christian, it's totally fine. Whatever it is, not a temptation. But for other Christians, I, they, I can't be here. I'm sorry, it's me, I, I need to separate. So here's, I think, a good question for us in light of this part of the text. Who is there in your life that you need to draw closer to and who do you need to draw away from? Like in your, in your class, in your dorm, in your office, at your gym, wherever. Are, are there people that you know that really you're being drawn away from the Lord? That, that if the pattern continues, more than likely you are going to give in to temptation. You need to be honest about that and, and find ways to graciously distance yourself. Because if your integrity is compromised, then your witness is, com is compromised. It's very difficult to try to explain to someone that the change that Jesus makes in your life if your life looks exactly the same as someone outside of the church. It's not that we're any better. It's that we've been redeemed by someone who is far better. So that's, that's the third mark of, uh, second mark of integrity, uh, that, that we separate from wickedness. Third mark, uh, devotion to God. Not surprisingly, devotion to God. Look at verses six to eight. David says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So David is very clearly devoted to God. And in that time, uh, loving and worshiping God happened within the context of the temple. And that's what we see him talking about here. He pictures himself washing his hands ceremoniously like the priest did before they entered the temple, um, proclaiming wondrous deeds, the wondrous deeds of God. That's what they did when everyone came to gather and worship at the temple. Uh, he says, I love your house, for that is where your glory dwells. So what does that kind of devotion to God look like in our day? Well, we'd have to say that this was a man, today would be a man who loves Jesus and loves his church. Loves Jesus, loves the church. And I say that because the church has now uh, replaced the temple. Not that the church is a building, but it's the people of God. It's a new dwelling place for God himself. The people of God, the, the church, us, those of us who call ourselves Tri-City Church, or if you're from another Christian church, we now are filled with the Spirit of God, and we have the opportunity to display the glory of God in the world. God is, God is working through us. In fact, look at how he describes the church. This is back uh, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians again, and this is kind of an offhand comment, but look at how he describes the church. This is uh, chapter 8, verse 23. He says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So the churches meant the groups of Christians at that time spread throughout Asia, the, the, the group of believers following Jesus, how does he describe them? They're the glory of Christ. Why? Because they are where God is revealing himself. He's revealing his power, his grace, his, his, his authority, his hope. All is coming through the people who have been changed by Jesus and are proclaiming the message of Jesus. 
And that continues to this day. So what David is saying is, look, as a man of integrity, this is what I'm excited about. I'm excited about the house of God. I'm excited about the works of God, the glory of God. And the question for us is, does that excite us as well? If it does, then we should be excited about what God is doing through the church. Now, sometimes it's difficult, frankly, to be excited about the church uh, because the church can be difficult. I mean, this last year uh, has been difficult. It's, it's been very difficult for us to engage in sort of normal patterns of worship and life as the church. There may be even things prior to COVID in your life that have just been difficult. Your, your relationship with the church is tenuous. But listen, nothing on this earth can replace the community of faith. Not because the community of faith, like the people, are so amazing. Frankly, we are not. Look around at us. We're not that amazing. We're not that great. That's not why. The reason it can't be replaced is because we are God's chosen instrument to reveal himself to the world. It's just, it's just the way God decided to do it, that he would cho- choose a group of people, that he would work in our lives to such an extent that we would then be able to display his power and glory to the people around us. So to have Christian integrity means to love the things that Jesus loves and to invest where Jesus invests, and that always is the local church. In fact, I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, this is uh, normally a marriage text that we point to, but look at, look at how it describes the relationship between Jesus and the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So look at the faithfulness of Jesus there. Look at his, in, his intentional commitment to the church, which, just to be clear, means his commitment to us, a people who are not faithful, who are filled with wickedness, especially before we knew Jesus. He, he knew us, knew us in our most rotten state, and yet said, I'm going I'm to die for this group of people. I love this group of people. Not just die for them, I'm going to work in them their entire lives to grow them in godliness, grow them in maturity, grow them in integrity. You may have heard it said, I've heard it a number of times, people would say, look, I love Jesus, I love the Bible, but I'm not so excited about the church and I don't really think I need it. I can just, just me and Jesus, I I can grow in my faith, even easier to say that now, frankly, right? We have the internet. You can watch sermons every day if if you want to. But what we need to see is that goes against the heart of integrity expressed by King David here. And it ignores the many calls in the New Testament for us to be with each other, to exhort each other, to disciple each other, love each other, pray for each other, carry each other's burdens. See, what David is saying is that he wants to be where God is working. He wants to be where the glory of God dwells. We should want that too. And that always points back to the local church. So listen, for us, probably a lot of us here, that would mean Tri-City Church. But if you're a guest from somewhere else, wherever your home church is, that's what this text is leading us to see, the value of our local church. And what I would encourage you to do, I know it's summer, I know we're... We're moving all over the province or country. It's the only place we can go. So we're going to be here and there. We're going to, we're going to be here some Sundays, away some Sundays. But here's what I would, I would encourage you to do is to think 
deeply and intentionally about how you plan to engage with the local church as we move towards fall. I don't just mean like, are you going to join a surf team? Although that would be great. I mean, I mean are, you, are you excited about opportunities to disciple someone else? To pray for others? To be in a, in a group where you would know the burdens of the people around you and they would know your burdens? And that when a crisis hits, that there's a group of people that, that you can just text and they, they're on it. They're with you. They're praying for you. Are you excited about evangelizing? Sharing the hope that you have with others? Because in all of these things, it's not just an expression of our integrity, that, that we love the things that Jesus loves, but also it's an opportunity to know him more and to experience his glory more. So that's the third thing. Part of our integrity is that we are a people that are excited about the church, the people of God, what God is doing in and amongst us. Now, you may have noticed with this list that this is a list that if you actually were to do it, it's, it's work. We have the, it's hard. It's sacrifice. It's effort. It's, it's all these things. So the natural question is, look, is this even worth it? Is, is, is it worth it to try to pursue this kind of integrity? And the answer is absolutely. So here's the second question. What are the benefits to integrity? Two answers. First one is this. With integrity comes stability in life. Stability in life and I'm going to jump down to the final verse, verse 12, and, uh, and, and here's where we see it. David says, My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. That idea of level ground is something I think we're familiar with. Uh, if you're going camping this summer, you're going to find level ground, right? Whenever you want to build anything or farm anything, we're always looking for level ground because with level ground, we, we can get our bearings. It means stability. It means security. And this is exactly what a life of integrity gives us. A lot of the time, our anxiety, our lack of peace, our sense of um, instability comes because there is unconfessed sin, there's things we haven't been honest about, that there are things that God is, is convicting us about that we're resistant to, to go there, and so we're always, we're just nervous, or we've got our conscience kind of churning within us. That's not a stable life. It's not a peaceful life. By saying we want to be people of integrity, really what we're saying is, look, we want to live our lives on the rock of Jesus, on, on the solidity of his word. This is the level ground, that we would, we would feel compelled to live a life that, in obedience to the Lord. And, and listen, I can tell you from experience that it is so much better to live life with a clear conscience than to be someone who's always got something in, in the closet. I mean, for the beginning part of my life, when I became a Christian in my uh, mid-teens to my early 20s, if you'd asked me if I wanted to be a person of integrity, I would have said, absolutely. But the integrity I was living was an integrity of convenience, meaning that whenever there was an opportunity, or most often there was an op opportunity for personal gain, uh, I would sacrifice my integrity. In fact, I was kind of practiced at it by that point. Uh, there were a lot of things that I was just used to keeping in the dark, keeping behind closed doors. And what I didn't realize was that this way of living, uh, this mindset was an incubator for sin. That sin always flourishes in the dark. And so because I had a lot of areas in my life that were dark, sin was just growing and, and flourishing. It, may, it meant that I was a very unstable person on the inside. I didn't have a lot of peace on, on the inside. 
It, it brought trouble to my faith, to my marriage when I got married, that I wasn't a truthful person, that I kept a lot of things from Don. Now, I think God had been pursuing me for a lot of years. But I remember on the day when it finally uh, hit home, I was at the top of, of Marmont Hill, you know, I was listening to something on the radio, I don't remember what, but, but all of a sudden, someone talking about their own life and, and troubles, and I was, the Spirit of God just, just fell, and I just felt this incredible weight, like I was being pressed down, and I, and I saw clearly all of these things that I had kept hidden, all of this sin, all of this dishonesty, and I just knew I had, I had to tell, I had to reveal it, I had to bring it into the light. Now, at that very same moment of feeling that conviction of, of needing to bring it into light, I also felt terror because it's a scary thing to confess sin, especially when you've kept it hidden for a long time. But I knew that that is what I had to do. I knew that I would have no peace if I didn't confess, and so that's, that's what I did. I confessed the areas of dishonesty with Don. I... I brought the sin forth, confessed it to God. And the, th the thing, the amazing thing I didn't anticipate was uh, just the freedom, just the sense of uh, being able to breathe. It's like I hadn't breathed in the past decade. And once that happened, even though, look, there was a lot of hard things that happened from that, a lot of hurt. But once I experienced that, I never wanted to go back to a life where I was putting things under the rug. I couldn't do it. And so I felt compelled simply for the joy of living a life of integrity, not just obedience to God, but for my own joy. As sin would come up, I would confess it. I began to pursue a life of integrity. So let me ask you again, if you're feeling that conviction, if you're feeling that the voice of the Spirit, and, and you know that you don't have peace, can I encourage you to move past the terror and to have a vision for the, for the joy and the peace and the stability that comes from being a person that just, that you, there's no dark closets anymore. That the people in your life know who you are. God knows who you are. It's such a joy. Stability in life, the first thing. Second thing, confidence in death. Here's the last uh, few verses. David says this, Oh Lord, or no, he says this, uh, Do not, Sweep my soul away with sinners. This is verse nine. Nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. As David separated himself from wickedness in this life, he asks God to separate him from the wicked on the day of judgment. But notice um, the appeal he makes to God. He appeals for redemption and grace. He says, redeem me and be gracious to me. Those two words are key in understanding how David, an adulterer, a murderer, can speak with such conviction about integrity. How, how can he write that way? Because he is ultimately appealing to the mercy and the grace of God. In fact, David wouldn't have realized it at the time, but here he was writing words of prophecy. Because the man of integrity that he was pointing us towards was not really him, but it was Jesus. Jesus was the one who was tested fully and proved blameless. Jesus was the one who was perfectly devoted to his father. Jesus was the one who could say that he washed his hands in innocence and loved God's house with perfect devotion. Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners. He sat, in a sense, with sinners a lot, but he never belonged to them. He was always the person of perfect integrity. 
And that is the basis for our redemption. That is the basis for our integrity. The, the joy that we have, if you're a Christian, is knowing that Jesus is the one who did all the heavy lifting in your life. See, that the challenge of a psalm like this is if we don't factor in Jesus, then this is just a list of religious moral instructions. Like every other religion in the world that says, look, you got to do this, 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 and this. Then you'll be a person of integrity. Then God might accept you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus did this, 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 and this for you. His righteousness gifted to you. All of your sin put on him so that now you can have absolute assurance that on the day of judgment, you will be forgiven. You'll, you, the doors will be open wide so that you can enter into the kingdom of God. Holy, pure, righteous. All of that done already at the cross. See, this is a text that is pushing us hard to pursue lives of integrity, but not like our eternal soul is resting on it. That, that, that frees us up. It should enable us to work hard by the grace of God, by the power of God, but not feel like if we make a misstep, if we make a mistake, that, that all is lost. It's not. It's not. By the grace of God, it's Jesus who is the one who has integrity for us. Here's John 3, 17, and then we'll close. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is not a call to condemnation. It's a call to salvation, to hope. Because when we experience that, then we want to live lives of integrity. We want for people to see us and say, why would you give up all that money? Why would you be honest? Why, why would you do this? And let me tell you about how I've been changed. Let me tell you about the one who was perfect for me. I just want to live a life that honors him. That breathes hope and encouragement into our lives. And hopefully by the grace of God, then we live a life that can actually glorify God. So let me pray for us. Let me pray that as David said here, we would be able to bless the Lord as we pursue integrity by his strength. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you are the man of perfect integrity. I thank you that on our behalf, you lived a life that was perfect and that on our behalf, you went to the cross and died. I pray that you would help us. Help us first and foremost to confess our sin, to believe in that, to be redeemed. But then, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live lives that honor you because of it. Lord, I pray that we would be people of integrity, that we would be absolutely secure, knowing that in any situation, we will be compelled by your spirit and by your word, and that we will be faithful in that. I pray, Lord, for courage this week, for us to have conversations with those that we need to about sin in our lives, for us to graciously distance ourselves from those that we know are being a bad influence, and Lord, first and foremost, for us to trust the leading of your spirit. We pray this in in the name of Jesus, amen.